Welcome back to the Just Picks podcast, episode number 354. Today, Eric Hansen joins us once again to talk about his remarkable faculty for being an incredible musician and audio engineer. Many folks can shine on only one side of the microphone. Eric is one of those rare musicians that can balance the performance and engineering aspects of a recording project. I mentioned in our last episode, I've known Eric for over 15 years. We met in the Cakewalk Sonar online forum, sharing ideas and techniques for recording, mixing, and mastering digital audio using the digital audio workstation known as Sonar. Eric impressed me with his knowledge and passion for recording. Years went by as we talked about recording before I realized a CD I had with classical guitar arrangements of Beatles songs had been performed and recorded by Eric. Needless to say, Eric never disappoints, whether he's playing or recording. This episode picks up where we left off prior, talking about recording and then doing a deep dive into the tracks of his current release, Transcendence. Before we get back into the interview with Eric Hansen, I just want to mention again Cakewalk Sonar, the software product that brought Eric and I together. That product is now called Cakewalk by BandLab and is an amazing digital audio tool that just happens to be free. Yes, I said free. Cakewalk by BandLab is the brainchild of Massachusetts jazz guitar maestro Noel Borthwick. Noel is a brilliant arch-top player from the Boston area and a world-renowned software engineer. Noel will be joining us in a future show, so you won't want to miss Noel Borthwick's conversation about jazz and his passion for recording the guitar. Now, back to our conversation with Florida Nylon fingerstyle master Eric Hansen. Well, let me ask you something I think is kind of interesting. One of the most amazing things about you for me is that you possess this rare ability to be at the, the highest level of both a player and an audio engineer, right? <laughs> right? And of the, I, I wrote down here, of the 100% of the people that try to do that, you're in the top 1% that can actually have a thing that requires two completely different mindsets. Being an engineer, you know, a scientist and, and dealing with problems, and being an artist, you know, creating problems, maybe whatever. H how in the world do you, do you do that? Very, very few people can be a musician and an engineer. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I have a clear answer for that, but I've always been fascinated with tone back in the day. So even like when rock days when I had, you know, my first Marshall or amps, I mean, I was a tone nut, you know, I, I'd always go out and buy the latest and greatest stuff that would make the tone better. And it's the same thing with the, the, the acoustic pickups too, right? Because always looking for a way to perfect the tone. But uh, I've always appreciated a good sounding album. Um, and, you know, when you hear an album that's mixed poorly, it's just kind of, for me, it distracts me because I'm into that kind of thing. But so I have certain albums that I think are some of the greatest mixed albums I've ever heard. And I always use those as benchmarks. And I've been striving to hit those benchmarks ever since. I don't think I've quite got there. But, uh, yeah, just fascinated with tone and balance and, and how much better can I make it, you know. So, but it's a lot of practice. You sit there mixing. I mix the same tune. Even though an album had come out and it's years old, I would still pull that project up from time to time and just remix it and just practice, you know, and watch a bunch of YouTube videos and, and learn how to mix bass better and how to integrate a kick and bass better and how to apply compression better. 
and reverb and all that stuff, and then go back, grab an old mix, and practice with it, and see how it sounds. You know, right, right, right. And uh, so, what what are some of the albums that are your benchmarks? I'm interested. Uh, Acoustic Alchemy for one. I love their. I think it's two albums ago. It's called Roseland. Mm-hmm. I think that album sounds amazing. I, I'm blown away with that album. Every time I listen to it, it's perfect. Uh, but my all-time favorite right now is probably Lee, Lee Rittenauer's Rhythm Sessions. Uh, that's a really, really great album because it's a mix of styles. So you get a wide range of things to hear. You got very jazzy stuff. Then you got kind of just kind of cool grooving stuff. Um, got steel string, nylon string, electric guitar. But on that album, I don't know how they accomplished it, but they got the deepest, the most amazing electric bass. And I've yet to, I try to match it and I end up kind of destroying my mixes. So I, I pull back um on on my low end but yeah just the drums the guitars that album sounds amazing it's called rhythm sessions and i i got the uh the high def version from that hd music website so that's my benchmark i'll throw that in a project and and reference it and usually i'm pretty deflated (laughs) right i'll put it on then i'll go back to my mix i'm like not there yet just keep trying you know until i get there and uh, now now, when you're doing that i I don't want to call it a b comparison because i think that that is i tell my students don't a b comparison i tell them to do spend a lot of time with a then a lot of time with b and see if you can come up with some differences right but when you're doing those comparisons are you hearing range of dynamic are you hearing bandwidth are you hearing separation what are the some of some of the things that you notice that you're shooting for yeah all the above separation um low end clarity uh with right sometimes you you don't realize how wide some of these albums sound you put on like how is that with being achieved is it is it just from the the way they mix it or is there you know mastering going on where they're playing with the width that kind of thing so I've, I've been trying to learn more about that part of it now i feel like i can mix an album i'm competent enough to mix a, 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 ta- a song right i get the bass right the drums right get the levels all right but now how do i achieve this this, this is extra kind of polish that they put on it and i know that's a whole other skill that you know i was paying people to do for a long time but considering you know how much money you can make off an album these days with streaming and that's our only real source there's no money coming back with right. a new album right i can't sell physical copies anymore nobody really buys physical copies so you got to find ways to kind of learn how to do it yourself and mastering is one of the areas where you know got cut and i learned how to do it myself and i'm slowly kind of figuring out little things here and there but i got a long way to go are, are you a plug-in freak yeah you know a lot though <laughs> though i do have my favorites and would get used most of the time and it's pretty much the stephen slate stuff uh, oh yeah 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 is, is my all basically my go-to stuff i have a handful of them when it comes to reverbs i, I just collect them all you know but yeah the stephen slate stuff's amazing and mixing the last album slate came out with his uh his vsx headphones in october or november last year and i've been so impressed with all their products i bought it immediately as soon as the announcement was made all right I put my order in and i was thrilled with these things i don't, I don't know if they're for everybody but i went back and basically remixed the whole new album through these things and to me, I started getting improvements in my low end, understanding where the low end was wrong or where there was conflicts and and frequencies, like upper mids. I have some deficiencies in my hearing from you know loud rock days in the upper mids. So, but these headphones were helping me determine where I was really not cutting enough, right? The guitar is a little harsh up in this area. I'm gonna pull this and I'm like, wow. I get in the car, I listen to it, and like it's translating exactly the way I expected it to. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is how you get 
your nylon guitar to sit in the mix well? And I realize this might get pretty deep, and we can figure out how you want to answer this, but one of the challenges is that you know, you've got a lot of stuff happening in some of your records. There's a lot of energy coming out of your albums, right? Yeah. Somehow, your nylon guitar sits in there like it's it's got all the room in the world, right? And that's really impressive. Not Most folks would just would compress the daylights out of it and, and just do gain compensation. You're not doing that. Somehow you're making that work. Yeah, I use light compression. Not much, maybe 2 dB on that stuff. But also it has to do with how the performance, right? You're going to perform in a way that doesn't require crazy compression that you keep your dynamics under control. Um, and then a couple, you know, once in a while you may have to do some gain clip adjustments on a, just a few hits here and there that got out of control. But um, yeah, just keeping keeping it in the right place. High pass filters are really the secret, <laughs> right? You know, using an aggressive high pass and getting all that low end mud out. And now I can bring the guitar up another dB or two in the mix and it's not really overpowering anything because everything below 100 is pretty much wiped out or, you know, tailored off and it allows those those mids and, and highs to come through better. I don't have to boost that stuff. You know, it's pretty flat. Most of my guitar EQ is mostly high pass filter with a slight pull in some mids and maybe a slight boost in highs and that's it. Not not much really. Pretty yeah, flat. talk a little bit about the, the mics you use in your in your signal chain when you're when you're capturing your recordings, and and, and actually what you use for transcendence. We're gonna tr we're, I think we should kind of move into transcendence a bit. But you know what did you use as your as your chain? Um, pretty much this Shope's CMC six uh, microphone with a with a uh, cardioid cap capsule. I think is an MK. I don't know what it is here. It's, it's what I'm actually talking into. MK four capsule. Uh, it's been my go-to mic for nylon string guitar. I've never used anything better. I've tried a bunch of mics, some very expensive mics, some not so expensive. And this mic just day in, day out gets the job done. It's a uh, Shope's CMC6 with the MK4 capsule. And I have for uh, preamp, I'm just using an API 512V. So this allows you to, um, it's kind of a more updated version of the API preamp. So you can drive the input hard, but then you can attenuate the output so you don't hit your converter too hard. So you can get just the right amount of saturation if you want and, and still not destroy your converter on the way in. And that's it for, for recording. Uh, and then everything else is applied in, in the mix process. Now for live streams, it's the same chain, but I also add in an EQ and some compression going in because now I got to have the live guitar sit with the track so I have a uh, Kush, what's this, Electra EQ here that I just kind of add a little highs to and, and high pass filter, right, that I need because now I'm sort of mixing my live guitar in with the track. So I got to apply those same things I would in the DAW. And then just some gentle compression with an uh, RNC, it's called a really nice compressor from FMR. Those oh, yeah. are all in that API lunchbox. So I got those little modules plugged into each other. Yeah, the 500s. Yeah, yeah, they're all 500 series stuff. So, so for live streams, it's going to be the API pre- the cushy cue and then the the compressor just to you know put the polish on the guitar that's needed uh for a live stream and then for a recording just through the api and then i'll just do the rest in the DAW. right but you're doing the high pass filter first no it's hitting the pre first then it hits the eq okay it's the compressor right but oh i see okay that, that that's what i want that's interesting it really i mean it really sounds great i mean especially on on the new record i mean it's just well of course all the records are are, are amazing let me let me ask you um I think when I look through your discography, I think you have eight albums out. Is that correct? If we're counting Transcendence as number eight, is that correct? It could be. Yeah, I, I you know, it's a good. I don't know. <laughs> I'd have to double check, but that sounds about right. 
Yeah, I, I think I think that's about right. Well, one of the things I want to ask you about is is your album that's out of left field, and and that that would be across the universe, right? Yeah. And the reason why I say out of left field, it, it that's how I was introduced to your playing, and so it's kind of funny. And now you know I, I know the body, all all the body of your work, but. Um, for those that don't know that, it's, it's uh, I think, a dozen Beatles songs that on your first album you had covered And I Love Her. And yeah. then and you, didn't re, you didn't reprise that on the album, so you did 12, 12 more songs. So w what I'm interested in, and I don't think a lot of people would know this from our conversation to this point, I think you are one, so sit down, bring your wife in because I want to tell her this, I think you are one of the greatest arrangers for the guitar I've ever heard in my life. Well, that's right? cool. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, it, 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 it is well, well deserved. You know, when I when I listened to uh, Barwaco's arrangement of Eleanor Rigby that he recorded at Abbey Road, and I listened to yours that you recorded in Florida, <laughs> I said to my wife, "Who is?" And that was again before I knew you. I was like, "Who is this guy? This is fantastic." Yeah, well, but, that's an interesting track you bring up because that that one track was a collaboration with a friend of mine I went to college with, uh, this guy Troy Gifford, who also wrote a duet for Transcendence, but. Um, it's his arrangement for Eleanor Rigby on there, and he definitely was pushing some. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say limits, but some ba not boundaries with with his with his guitar arrangement on that piece. It's a lot of guitars, like six tracks, yeah. I think, yeah. uh, and and a lot of cool stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, it's been it, he's been a great friend all these years from Florida Atlantic University. And, yeah, in fact, I, I'm I'm going to bring up a question about Troy as we get deeper in transcendence. But the question I want to ask you is when you are arranging, okay, um, and you're spe especially when you're arranging music that people have heard for forty five and fifty years, right. Are, are you are you, are you approaching it? I, I know this sounds stupid. Musically, guitaristically, uh, trying to be true to the original composition. I mean, or is it different every time? There's no formula. I think back when I did that album, I was trying to stay more true to the melodic content of the song and not being too fancy with the arrangements. Some I got a little bit more fancy with others. I think I was pretty conservative with. I think now my approach would probably be more, what can I do with this tune and make it sound totally different? Like if you listen to Al Miola's Beatles stuff, you know, he's, he's of course putting his stamp on it, but, but he's doing a lot rhythmically with it. Uh, that makes it a lot more interesting than it used to be. Sometimes it may be kind of hard to hear the melody in, in some of the, his arrangements. And this is not a criticism. It's just an observation because right. I, I, I think the world of L. um, but uh, yeah, for me, I always like the, the melodies what drew me into Beatles music and what you remember. So I try not to, to mess with them too much. But I would like to, because of Al's influence, I'd like to be more experimental, I think, and if I was to do a project like that again. Yeah, and I'm, I don't want to hang out too much on this record. But I just want to say, like, when, for instance, when I listened to Michelle off that record, I heard harmonies that you were inventing, or not inventing, but that were bringing the song to me, a song that I knew for, you know, for so, so many years, but your harmonic approach to, to so many of those pieces was just exquisite, you know, and I can't get, I, in fact, I have to tell you, there are several albums that I say to my wife, I will not listen to a lot because I want to treasure them, right? So, you're across the universe, I only listen to once a year. Wow. Yeah. Because it's and so there's 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 about five albums in that category and you're in that category. I gotta tell you, Michael. Do you know Michael Dowdle from Utah at all? No. Okay, so hopefully through this show you get, you'll get to know Michael. But Michael's a, a great player, not a nylon player. Like he's kind of more like all over the board. But he's got an album that's in that category. But anyways, so let me jump forward to, to Transcendence a little bit, right? Um, where will people be able to get the album? Well, it's just going to be on your usual streaming platforms of Apple Music, Spotify. Uh I'm not sure how Pandora's Pandora's working. They're a little bit different the way they handle things, so I don't know what to expect with that. And I got to get my my 
my act in gear with when it comes to Pandora because I'm mixed up with another artist by the same name. And it's been a little bit difficult to get that sorted. But Spotify is probably going to be the best place to find it. Apple Music, of course, Amazon, and some of the other streaming services that I'm probably forgetting the names of. But uh, that's one way. I, I may sell it directly from my website, but it's being it's becoming increasingly harder to buy it, download it, and get it onto your phone. Because yeah. it's like they, they seem to be fencing out ways to just save something to your phone and music. They want you to go to the streaming service now. So... Because I've shared some advanced copies with friends and like, well, how do I get this on my phone? They have to just click on the the Google Drive link or whatever and then play one song at a time. They can't just bring it in as a collection part of their music. It's been it's been tough in that respect. So yeah, right. I may sell it directly. I may just let it be streaming. I really need to get my streaming revenue up. I need to focus a lot of energy there and I've kind of neglected it in the last couple of years. So I'll probably just use this album as, this, as the vehicle for that, you know, and just keep promoting it that way. And uh, right, of course, right. you know, follow it up with, with live performances on YouTube uh, for this album, which I have yet to schedule, but I will do something in the near sure. future. Yeah, I think I think that's great. Yeah, because I know some of your albums aren't available on the like for the the Beatles album's not available on the platforms right now. I don't know if you're planning to release that. But that's through a, a label. I have no control over over right. that. My first four albums went through a different or went. Through oh a yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I have no control over the uh, distribution and what happens to those. Yeah, they're, pro they're probably not moving. So let's talk about transcendence. And first, what I'm interested in is your collaboration with Ancestos and Steven Duros. I mean, kind of talk about how that came about and you know through the pandemic how you guys got the record done. Okay. Uh, well, first, I first it starts with Jim Stubblefield. So. Yeah, I'm, I was going to talk about him. Go ahead. That's yeah, good. So now Jim, Jim and I have known each, of each other because of this record label I mentioned that I did my first four records with. They also worked with um, with Jim's band Incendio. I, I don't know. I don't think they actually distributed their albums, but they, they maybe they licensed some tracks or something like that. Um, so Jim knew of me through that, and I knew of Jim. We didn't really talk very much at all through a, for a long time. And then some one day we just start kind of chatting on Facebook and uh, we start to get to know each other and we start talking to each other on a daily basis. And um, I start telling him, telling him about the pickup that I've been using and he's interested. So he sends the guitar out. I put the pickup in, he loves it. He starts to tell, you know, other players he knows and then happens to be Dan Sistos and Steven. So then Dan, eventually I get to talking with Dan. Dan sends his guitar out. This is where I had my first exposure to the Herman Vasquez Rubio guitar because Dan sends me his. I put the pickup in. I take it to a gig to test it, and I don't want to send it back. <laughs> I'm like, this thing's amazing. Um, so, you know, Dan gets his pickup, and then Dan says, well, he, he starts talking to Steven. We got to get Steven in on this pickup. Let's get him in. So Steven gets kind of into the group now, and, and I and then become friends with these guys. Uh, we all have, you know, deep mutual respect for each other. And, uh, they're, I mean, they're best players that i know of in, the, in our genre so um so the collaboration starts with me and jim we do the, the duet show in california we kind of release uh, an ep of that stuff but you know in our daily chats we're like hey we all should be you know guesting on each other's stuff so it came up that you know for this album i said well i'd love to have you guys here so dan dan got in on track steven got in on the other track and uh that's kind of how we've arrived now i have to return the favor so i'm waiting for that call <laughs> You hear that, guys? <laughs> yeah, you hear that? That's outstanding. So your old FAU classmate Tony pens the song Aster for this new album, and I assume that's a reference to Piazzolla? Yeah, yeah, right. it's a heavily influenced by Piazzolla. Right. And it's a, so tell our listeners about the tune Aster. 
Well, first of all, we're all blown away with, with Piazzolla back when, when the Assad brothers come out and they, they record the tango suite and we all hear it for the first time. I remember seeing a performance of that in Miami and probably is the greatest concert I've ever attended. The Assad duo playing this piece sounded amazing to me at the time. The performance was, was probably flawless as they are. Uh, and then everybody starts to discover this music that Piazzolla does. Now, Al Mule is into it. Everybody else is into it. And it's just such a unique style. And I, and I, this music touched with me somewhere. I was like, I know this style from something. And it, I realized later that this was being used in the movie 12 Monkeys, right? I think some of that, I don't know if it was Piazzolla's music or it was heavily influenced by it, but there was that style, uh, in that movie. And I remember liking it then. So, you know, coming forward. So Troy and I share that that affinity for for Piazzolla's music, and uh, I guess I, I'm not sure what made him choose that particular style or piece. I'd have to ask him for this album, but maybe it's just because we both share that you know that love, and it just seemed to fit the album. You know, it, it worked its way in in a way because it's hard. That's that you're injecting this classical piece into something that the rest of the album is not really classical. I did my own classical duet later on the album, but these were hard things to inject into this feel of this album. It's a pretty wide range of, of style. But uh, yeah, Troy went for that sound and uh, he came by and recorded it probably two or three years ago. That's how long this album's been dragging out. So he comes here, he records this part, I record my part. And I'm like, yeah, we'll get into the album. The album's almost done. And I've been saying this now to him for two years. The album's almost done. He's like, when are you going to release it? The album's almost done. I don't know. Well, I'll get to it. I'm sorry. Um, and then the pandemic hits. Everything comes to a halt. And I'm like, hey, now's a good time for us to make a video of this because I got nothing to do. I got no gigs. He's got time. I got time. So let's, let's do a video. You record you know, your part or just you know, playing along with it. And then I'll do mine. And then I'll do a split screen. And that's, that's how we did. So that came out whenever it was in March or April or something during the pandemic. Uh, and finally, thank God, a year later, now it's actually an official release as a tune. So it's been out, it's been out there for a little while, but um, yeah, the pandemic finally gave us an opportunity to do something we probably would never have got to do, which was doing that nice little video. Um, and the song is just incredible. And, and, you, oh, and amazing. yeah, and if people are, are not familiar with Piazzolla's tango, uh, and he's Argentinian, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it just really deep in in. in you know, I, I listen. I, I, I like you listen to the Assads play that music. I think you guys bringing that forward and that it, it's a kind of a contemporary piece in a little way, right? But I think it is so traditionally um, an homage to that stuff. I just love the track when I first heard it. Talk, yeah. talk about the the, the uh, title track, Transcendence, how that came about and how the album became named that. Yeah, this album has been a real tough one to name tracks and to name the album because I was kind of conflicted over the title because it sounds like it's going to be a very relaxing, calm album. And there are moments where it's like that maybe, but uh, it was weird to, to find titles for these tunes. But for whatever reason, this, the tune that got the title transcendence, um, when I kind of come out of the, the pre-chorus into the chorus, there's this, to me, there's a big buildup harmonically that happens. And it, it always just portrays the sense of something's going to change for the better or for positive or something, something that great is going to happen. I'm not saying great as I'm great or anything, but like just something in your life or, or spiritually is going to change. And then when the chorus finally breaks, it feels like it's there. It happens and it drives that, that idea home. I don't know. That's what goes through my head when, when I play the tune. So it may not resonate that way with someone else, but that's what goes through my, so that tune kind of took on that title 
And I also think it's, you know, a really great tune to start the album with because it just explodes on you like that. And uh, it's a long tune too, but um, yeah, it's kind of how I got there with that title and then trying to find, you know, an album cover that kind of made sense with it. You know, so using that kind of Nordic symbol that I used of, uh, you know, everything lives and dies in a cycle or whatever it is. I, I, I don't know enough about it to sound intelligent, so I'm just going to omit <laughs> my description well, of why I picked that. But uh, right. Well, for, for our listeners, Eric on his Facebook page about two or three weeks ago put up four different color shadings of the album potentials cover, the album cover. Yeah. And, and he said, which color do you like? <laughs> It was like, I like them all, don't even add. And they, in fact, they even all looked good to grouped together. I don't know if anyone said that. I said, that Yeah, I, I want to make a poster of it like that, you know, and just hang it on the wall. It looks kind of cool like that. And then, now your daughter, Mary, is it? That, yeah. Is that? Yeah, she's doing graphic design here at Florida Atlantic, actually. Um, so she, she's got the access to all the Adobe suite and all that stuff. So um, I'm like, here's the concept, put it together. And she did all the wor hard work and helped me get it finished and rendered and all that stuff so and if i need help i just you know we do a quick little zoom call she shares the screen with me and we just make some adjustments and i love it well i, I can tell you it it is absolutely top notch she did a great job and i think she really captured the the, the quality of the album so you were talking about aster was the, the duet with you and troy right so downstream you do rabbit hollow which i think is a duet with yourself is that correct yeah yeah it's just talk just a little bit about that one so that's a, that's an odd tune. I, I don't even know how it came about. I just was probably messing around with the, the tuning of uh, it's like the same tuning as like uh, uh, Sevilla, where you have the um, the sixth string tune to D and the and the fifth string tune to G. So and I was just playing some arpeggiated stuff and started to kind of come up with a pattern or a chord progression I liked. And uh, it it this is one of those tunes where like within a day or two it was done. And I love when that happens because they seem to be the tunes that flow the best, right? You're not struggling to complete it. You're not struggling to, f to find a particular part that works. It just worked right from the start. And, but it had a whimsical kind of, kind of feel to it, you know, kind of fantasy like or whatever. And uh, I just, and we, we actually have two bunnies here that we, we have living with us. <laughs> in the house. So for some reason, whatever, when I play this tune, I just kind of think about, rabbits and what what they would look like in the wild and the forest and that kind of stuff so that's kind of how that name came about on that tune it just kind of kind of fit the the vibe that fantasy vibe or whimsical vibe of it you know right well you know you're speaking as a composer now i mean so you get some sometimes you get some imagery that influences yeah, where you're going yeah it's true and and this album i think is more of a programmatic programmatic type thing because every tune does kind of portray something for me visually in it and it's weird because it's always there i don't ever stop seeing these things when i'm playing so yeah a lot of tunes if not all of them have some sort of visual image that's going to go with it you know talk briefly about the the two covers on in, in the album message in a bottle and, and, and the kansas tune i mean with all the stuff happening in the world not not covid related just music related um what 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 has you select a song that's going to fit along with your original compositions. I mean, something's got to stand out for you, I think. Yeah, well, to make it fit, the arrangement has to get it there, right? So that's one thing. Um, but also just just hearing a song and just saying, how this could be a cool instrumental. You know, there's enough going on in this tune melodically that makes it interesting to be an instrumental. What can I do with that? And th that tune, I decided to try to be a little bit more, I wouldn't say experimental, but I 
slowed the tempo way down and brought it back to the original tempo at the end. So I tried to change it up a bit. Now, the, the Kansas tune is pretty much the way it was done. I didn't do anything special there other than apply the guitar to every part. Uh, but for Message in the Bottle, yeah, I just kind of wanted to make it kind of build up differently because it's got that that nice arpeggiated thing in the beginning. It just sounds cool if you start to play it Al Miol like with more muted. You know, it sounds kind of cool and then you get the right drum groove underneath it. Um, but also there, there, there are experiments that I, I'll try out at gigs. Now, how is the audience going to re respond to this? Those two tunes were getting a great response. So I figured they kind of go on there because people start asking you, what album is that on? What album is that on? And uh, so it's got to make its way on to something, right? So I've done some covers that kind of fall flat, don't go anywhere, and then some that are seen the big crowd pleasers. So those were the ones that made it in for this one. Yeah, as I recall, Hotel California is one of your nuclear bombs, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. That was another, like, as you play it at gigs, the response is just so huge that, you know, it's uh, it has to be included somewhere. Well, and, uh, tell me about the, the second track in the album, uh, the Taparanda. I mean, what, what that is all about. So that's like a, like a nod to Strunz and Faraz's Recuerdo, which has got the, a very similar kind of line going in the bass. But it's got a lot of arpeggiated stuff in the middle section, which which I thought was cool. It has a lot of twists and turns. Um, the groove really came to life when Matt did his drums on it because it was it was a bit different sounding with the way I had done my MIDI drums first and recorded again. So then Matt came in and redid it and did so many interesting things with it that I re-recorded the guitars anyway and the bass line to fit Matt's stuff better. Um, but the showcase is really the middle part where the solo kicks in. I do a long solo over just one chord, basically, under or like an E and D chord, so it's like two chords. Then it shifts keys to uh, F sharp, and that's where Steven's solo comes in. And Steven's vibe is totally different than mine. His is, it's, he's bending notes, it's a bit more twisty and turny. And I just think he just did an amazing solo on that tune. Uh, he also plays the lead in the second verse and harmonies throughout. So he's, he's all throughout the track. And I try to pan us a little bit so there's some separation, you can kind of pick out who's who. But uh, yeah, it was like a showcase for for you know crazy chop solos because it's those are long solo sections and uh, it was it was a fun thing to have Steven on. Yeah, there, there's some steel string on this album, right? Yeah, I do a lot of doubling of lines and arpeggios with nylon and steel, so they'll be panned. I don't think they're going to be totally panned hard left or right, but they're panned enough with their separation. But the steel string allows some of the upper mids to cut through. The nylon strings there to fatten it up. It's kind of a weird thing, but they're like they're they're almost kind of you know offsetting each other and where where they need it, uh, and it just adds to that. This particular tune was very very hard for me to mix because I really like the arpeggiated parts that are in the chorus. When it goes to A minor and it starts to climb through these different chords, I had a hard time mixing the melody loud enough, but still being able to have your ears focus on those arpeggios. And I I don't know how many mixes of this tune I went through. But I, I know if I look at the, like the the folder where all the mixes, it would say like mix 10E. So you know that by the time I got the 10, it wasn't just 10 mixes, it was probably 40 mixes, right? Because each one had like four versions. So, um, but finding the right frequencies to cut through for those arpeggios is is tough with all the other stuff with the bass line, the drums, and the hand percussion. So using the steel string and the nylon string, doubling those parts tends to help give it body, but also the upper frequencies to cut through. Since yeah. the melody is strictly nylon string, right? right. And, and you're you're micing the uh, the steel string the same way you're micing the nylon. Yeah, same mic, same signal chain. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. that makes all the sense in the world. Tell me about it. Is it Zemestan? 
the next yeah, yeah. yeah so that's on so now that's that's inspired by a, a friend of mine mark Estorabadi, another friend i've made acquaintance with on on facebook um and he comes down here every year and has his wedding anniversary with his wife and we hang out and uh he always comes with a few gifts and he came with a painting one year and uh paintings well i don't know if we're doing video for this but the paintings behind me you can see it it's kind of blurry but it's back there both those paintings behind me are his uh one of them is the zemestan so it's a painting of a winter scene and it's like in a forest and there's a like an aurora in the background and there's snow falling and it's just a very calming thing to look at i i i always like this painting because it's like i would love to be in this place sometimes right because you're stressed out and like if I was in this place right now and I was just where it was just dead silence and all you hear is just nature, uh, I would be, you know, rejuvenated by that. So I start composing this piece. It starts off with just kind of plucking a few of these chords and then they were pretty typical chords for, for this genre for flamenco. It's not something you probably heard a million times, but whatever reason that night, the tone of the chords was inspiring. So I start to put the melody over it. And as I'm, as this tune starts to come together, I, I'm picturing his painting for some reason, right? It's just there in my mind. It's calm. I feel calm. And the melody comes out and I get to a point where I'm like, what am I going to do when I get to the solo? And I didn't know what to do. So I, I took a break from that tune for a week or something and came back with this arpeggiated sequence for the solo, which I, th I thought came out pretty nice because it, it kind of moves the, the tune around. Then I got stuck again. How do I come out of this and get back to the beginning? I'm also a huge fan of Vivaldi. I, I know it's tired, but everybody, you know, everybody knows four seasons and I love the movement, the fast movement for winter. So I wanted to do something that he does or Vivaldi did in four seasons with, he'll always have these explosive moments, right? So coming out of the solo, the whole tune just kind of comes to an end, not an end, but pauses. And then I explode into these arpeggiated things that will eventually wind their way back to the, the verse and the tune will end. So it was kind of a weird thing like that. But uh, yeah, the whole time this tune is coming together, I'm, I'm thinking about Mark's painting and, and the calmness that it's, it's given me. And I just wanted to put a little contrast in the middle with that, with that loud, you know, full forte, uh, uh, fortissimo type arpeggios, just to, just to kind of shock the listener a little bit. In fact, the paintings on your Facebook page—that's where I first saw it. Yeah, yeah, it was mixed in with one of those posts. Yeah, yeah, it's just fat. It's just fabulous. So I'm uh, thrilling that it inspires you. Well, next next on the album is uh, is uh, King King's Canyon. Or no, we just talked yeah. about um, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. We just talked about. So uh, skipping over Astor, we talked about that. Walk through the pines is is yeah. on the album next. Yeah, where is that? Uh, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit on King's Canyon. Now, the 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 key that that Zemestan is in leads into King's Canon that these two pieces, even though there's no relation to them, musically, they seem to go together nicely because Zemestan ends on that chord. It's not the one chord, right? So it's leaving you hanging. And then it resolves when, when King's Canyon starts. And that was the reason why they were placed the way they were. Um, and King's Canyon is basically just inspired by uh, King's Canyon in California, where you can go see all the uh, Sequoia trees. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I love that. You see that, that kind of, theme is running through the album with nature and trees and you know that kind of stuff uh so we saw the sequoia trees a few years ago that imagery stayed with me and this tune i was always looking for a very big sound you know the the, the middle section when it modulates to b minor that's very big drum uh, matt's hitting some big you know hits with the drums and everything's huge so the whole goal with that tune was to, to make everything on the big sound big you know just like these trees are big and amazing and imposing so that was kind of what the thought process was. 
but the tune itself, it was the way it started was like, I could barely play the, the middle section. I was just noodling around at a gig waiting to start my gig and just happened to hit this little riff. I'm like, that's cool. I recorded it on my phone. And if I was to play you the way I played it that day, it's like, wow, this guy sounds like a clown, right? <laughs> but you, you know that there's something there that you can use. Like I hear a motif or something to build on. So this little idea that's in the middle of the song and it kind of finishes out the song too, ends up building the rest of it around it. So the verses and all the other parts form later, but yeah. Then, then uh, a walk through the pines, that's basically the same trip, but now you're in mere woods where there's redwoods. So my wife and I go there and we get there like four in the afternoon or something. So we're walking through and it's just perfect day. The weather's beautiful. The sun is setting, the lights filtering through the trees. You got God rays cutting through everywhere. And we're just taking photo after photo after photo. It's picture picturesque. So the whole time I'm writing this tune, that imagery is going through my mind and that, that, you know, that feeling of being with my wife and just, just a perfect day basically of nature and, 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 you know, your companionship and all that stuff. So it was the perfect tune for her. Yeah. That's, that's fabulous. That's absolutely fabulous. And then you go into the Kansas tune following that is the tune I can't pronounce. Uh, oh yeah, Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, I'm a big fan of the ancient aliens type stuff. Those shows. Um, so they talked about this particular region, which is probably like the oldest. I don't know if it is still considered this, but at the time, maybe they reported it as such. But it was like the oldest man-made temple, I guess, or something. You know, the monolithic structures. It's to me, it's just fascinating that this stuff is built so long ago. And a lot of times they're like, they don't know how, it's just like the pyramids. They don't really know how it was built or they can speculate, but it's just mind boggling that these people had the energy and know how to build these things so long ago without the type of you know materials and tools that we have today. Um, the tune is weird because it's, it's a hard, it was another hard one to, to name. It starts off one way, starts off kind of quiet, you know, with this little buildup goes into the middle section, but then ends in a more Arabic sounding way. And I always found that the ending was a little bit out of left field. And I, I was hoping to expand on that ending a little bit somehow and maybe bring the whole thing back together. I never could solve that that problem. And it's just kind of stayed the way it ended up being. But um yeah, it's it's a tough one because of the feel of it. It's it's I don't it's it's hard to explain that one. And the title was a tough one to go with too, but I figured because it was just so weird sounding and had so many kind of different vibes as far as ethnicity to it. It just seemed like a cool name to, to put on it. Yeah, it's probably kind of a lame ex description, but uh, <laughs> that's kind of how I got there. No, that's perfect. Well, we, we talked about um, Rabbit Hollow, unless you want to expand on that, but I also am interested in Information Paradox is the one name that seems to be you know kind of outside of the group here. Yeah, and so is the song, right? It's kind right. of an oddball tune. It's kind of pushing the, the envelope a little bit with weirdness. Um, I, I, honestly, that, that that's a that's a weird tune. It just I think it happened very quickly, and I don't really remember the process of, of writing it. It just kind of came out, and it was like, where do I stick this tune? I had it in the middle of the tracks. I had it more in the beginning, but it's just too weird. Then I thought, you know, it seems like a weird closer. Just saying, you know, things are going to be probably moving in a different direction after this album. So why not put this at the end and just kind of leave people wondering what the hell that was just about? But it's it's partially inspired by uh the middle part is inspired by the movie interstellar and that whole moment when they were they were on the planet they were fighting against time 
they had the, their, their rate of time was a different because of the gravity of the black hole that was nearby. And like every hour was like, I don't know how many years on earth. And, uh, the, the music that was applied in there had a very subtle kind of clock ticking thing going on that, that, uh, Hans Zimmer used. And when I get to the middle of that tune, I kind of was thinking about that. So I get into this more of a, like seconds kind of clicking by and I, you know, the Bach influence comes out through that, that kind of thing. It's kind of building up with this Bach kind of arpeggiated sequence of notes. And, uh, to me, the, the fun part of that section was the bass line. Putting that down was was more challenging than anything else because the bass is really busy in that spot. Mm-hmm. It starts off with you know just whole notes, but eventually it starts to build up with sixteenth notes, just like the rest of the stuff. And I think that's what kind of makes the section. And then of course you know Matt's build up of the drums in there. It's it's a long section and it's got a lot of space. And you know it's not an easy thing to fill with interesting things you know outside of what the guitars are doing. So these guys really nailed the build up coming out of there and then getting into the bridge leading back to the beginning. It's a weird tune for sure. Yeah. Do you think you'll ever play some of this live with a band? With a band? I would love to. And I'm sure that will happen at some point. Um, some of these tunes probably would require two guitar players at least. Usually when I'm playing with a band, I'm the only guitar player in there. Right. So right. those other parts have to be assigned to a, a different instrument. Uh, but yeah, some of them definitely. I would love to do Transcendence with a band because that's still my favorite track from the album. Uh, and I would also love to do a walk through the pines because that's an easy one to do with a band, right? It's basically like a jazz quartet could handle that one. No problem. Um, and probably uh day Peronda also, that would be a really cool one because of the long solo features in the middle. Really right. let that come through. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause I know you, you do some of your, a lot of gigs on you know, solos or whatever, and you did stuff with Jim and so on, but that would be great to see you again in an ensemble like that. And I think we'll get there. I mean, one of the things that's happening uh, is audiences have got to feel comfortable getting back into venues, and it just you know we're all we're, we're all learning through this. I want to thank Eric for being on the show. What a trooper spent so much time in conversation with us. Just a fabulous interview. Please check out the show notes for how to get a hold of uh, Eric's information, how to look at his uh, view his live streams, how to find his albums, how to get his albums on Spotify, how to find some of his uh, earlier albums, one of which is, you know, one of my favorites was uh, the, uh, the Beatles CD. It's just really an amazing CD. Anyways, my thanks to Eric Hansen. Uh, join us in our next show, the Just Picks podcast.